thank you Joel for the reading of the word and uh, thank you also for praying for me it's much needed especially this morning <clears throat> so as I was driving here uh, for worship and I had a lot of thoughts in my mind and legitimate thoughts in fact and the Lord brought to my mind one particular verse uh, from Psalm 16 you will make known to me the path of life you will fill me with joy in your presence and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. You will make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. There's joy in the presence of God, no matter what's happening outside, around. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. <clears throat> so let me begin with an illustration here as we study or continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. In the days when there was no electricity, there was a lighthouse along a bleak coast. It was a very dark coast. It was managed by a keeper who was given enough oil for a month to keep the lighthouse burning. Just enough oil for a month. One day, a woman came to him and asked for oil and said, I would like some oil from you because I want to keep my kids warm. It's pretty cold. And then a farmer came and said that I need some oil for my mortar to water my fields. Would you please give me some oil? And then several others came and uh, the keeper saw that each one was a worthy request. And he measured the amount of oil that they needed and he gave it to each one of them. And near the end of the month, the tank in the lighthouse ran dry. And he couldn't keep the lighthouse burning that night. And three ships crashed on rocks and 100 people died on those three ships. And then a government official was investigating this particular uh, issue. And the man explained to him why he did what he did. But the investigating officer said this, you were given just one task. And that is to keep the lighthouse burning. Everything else is secondary. You were just given one task. And that is to keep the lighthouse burning. Everything else is secondary. You have no defense. Priorities. Priorities. <clears throat> In our fast-paced lives, it's easy to lose sight of our priorities. And when we are under pressure, we tend to focus often on the urgent and not always on the important. When we are under pressure, we tend to focus often on the urgent and not always on what is important. Keep that at the back of your minds, please, as we look at Luke's gospel today. When we started the study of Luke's gospel, we spoke about four major themes that we'll be looking at through our study of Luke-Acts, we talked about the issue of salvation, <clears throat> the negative response of the Jewish nation, and then the role of Jesus in the plan and the purposes of God. And lastly, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Once again, we looked at the issue of salvation. How are the Gentiles added into the plan and the purpose of God? And the second thing was the negative response of the Jewish nation. Although the Messiah was Jewish, and the message was taken to the Jewish audience. Why was there such a rampant negative response from a Jewish audience? 
we look at the theme. <clears throat> we'll also look at the role of Jesus in the plan of God, in the salvation plan of God. Who is Jesus? Was a question that Luke was addressing. And ultimately, Luke was also addressing the major theme of what does it mean for you and me to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And some of these themes have already emerged in the passages that we've studied so far. What's been the story so far? Now we've looked at Luke chapters 1 and 2 and we are at the final segment, the final passage of Luke chapter 2. As we looked at these two chapters and various brothers have taken wonderful studies all these months, what stands out clearly is that God is fulfilling his promises that he's made long ago. God is fulfilling his promises that he had made long ago. And in trying to show that, Luke introduces for us two key figures in these chapters. One is John the Baptist and the other one is Jesus. And as we sift through these chapters and observe a little closer, although he is bringing out two key figures of John the Baptist and Jesus, when we look a little closer, we clearly see the superiority of Jesus to John the Baptist. The superiority of Jesus to John the Baptist. And also we've seen throughout these two chapters that numerous witnesses from heaven and earth testify to what God is doing as he brings his salvation to mankind. Now we come to the passage for this morning, which is Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. And by the way, Joel, thank you so much once again for reading the text for us. <clears throat> this passage sketches for us Jesus' own testimony about his identity and mission. Now listen very carefully, please. This passage clearly portrays for us Jesus' own testimony about who he is, his identity, and also his mission. It is the last section in this unit with Jesus sounding the final note. Until now, everybody else has spoken about him, isn't it? There were several people from heaven and earth who have spoken about this salvation that God is bringing to mankind. Now, in the final section of what we call as the infancy narrative, which is Luke chapter 1 verse 5, all the way till chapter 2 verse 52, which we'll finish today, chapter 2 verse 52, which we'll finish today, <clears throat> we see that Jesus here is being moved to the center stage. Jesus is being moved into the limelight. And he is now going to speak for the rest of the gospel as he does his ministry. So Luke is bringing Jesus into the limelight, to the center stage. Because until chapter 2 verse 41, everybody else spoke about Jesus. Like I said earlier, Gabriel spoke about who Jesus is. The angels spoke about him. Elizabeth spoke about him. Mary spoke about him. Zachariah spoke about him. Simeon spoke about him. Anna spoke about him. Last week, Brother Eldie was talking to us about it. And all of a sudden, we see Jesus in this passage, speaking for the first time in the gospel, opening his mouth and speaking about himself. Who is he? And what is the mission that he came for? So in this final passage, Jesus introduces himself and his authority. He introduces himself and his authority. So as we begin this passage, we raise the question, what can we understand about Jesus' identity and authority? What can we understand about the identity of Jesus, about who Jesus is and the authority that he has? <clears throat> the passage before us tells us two things regarding the identity and the authority of Jesus. So follow along, please, and listen to me very, very carefully 
as we go through this particular passage. It says two things, two very simple things about the identity of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. So the first thing is found in verses 41 all the way till uh, verse 50. Verses 41 all the way till verse 50. And these verses say that people struggle to understand Jesus' person, work, and authority. People struggle to understand, they often struggle to understand the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the authority of Jesus. Jesus is so unique that people often have difficulty in recognizing and accepting him for who he is, especially in the full scope of his person and the full scope of his mission. Did you hear that? Jesus is so unique that people often have difficulty in recognizing who he is, especially in the full scope of his person and the full scope of his mission. And that's what we see in these verses that we're going to study. We see that Mary and Joseph did not understand the exact nature of the identity and the mission of Jesus. Mary and Joseph did not understand the exact identity and the mission of Jesus, at least in this passage here. So Luke gradually unravels this truth for us by narrating this portion of the story in four different scenes. He narrates this portion of the story in four different scenes. So follow along, please. We'll go scene by scene and see what's happening here and how this truth comes to the fore. <clears throat> in the first scene, Jesus journeys to Jerusalem in his 12th year. Jesus journeys to Jerusalem in his 12th year. Look at verses 41 and 42. Look at your Bibles, please, as I read the verses for us. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. If you have the habit of underlining in your Bibles, I know some of you don't, but if you do, underline the phrase, according to custom. Very important. So the scene begins with a clear portrayal of the devotion of Jesus' parents to Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. The parents of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, were absolutely serious about their faith. They were devoted to Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. The same thing was brought to the fore by Brother LD when he spoke last week uh, about the presentation of Jesus at the temple, right? They took their faith seriously. Now, the Old Testament commanded Jewish men to come to Jerusalem to celebrate three feasts in a year. There were other feasts, but... Men, Jewish men, had to come to Jerusalem to celebrate three feasts. Number one was the Passover. The second one was the Feast of the Pentecost. And the third one was the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of the Tabernacles. However, since the nation was scattered and people lived in distant parts of Israel and even outside, what happened there was a custom developed all of a sudden in the first century Judaism. And the custom was, since the nation was scattered and people lived in distant parts of Israel, you didn't have to come for all these three feasts, but you had to make a trip to Jerusalem at least once a year to the temple. At least once a year to the temple, just because of the distance that you lived from Jerusalem. Now, the text tells us here that Joseph and Mary went to Jerusalem, how often? Every year. They went to Jerusalem every year. 
We don't know whether Jesus accompanied them every single year before this, but we do know that at the 12th year or in his 12th year, he was taken to Jerusalem. It certainly must have been the most exciting time of the year. Imagine a village boy, you know, a people people from a small village like Nazareth going all the way to a big city, Jerusalem, the capital of the entire nation, that at this time of celebration is drawing thousands and thousands of worshippers from all over the country. Now, the Passover was a major feast celebrated at the beginning of the Jewish year. It comes on the 15th day of Nisan, which is the first month of the Jewish calendar. Now, in our calendar, it will be about March or April. It comes around the time of Easter for us. It recounts and evokes memories of the great and miraculous deliverance of the nation from slavery from the land of Egypt. God with a mighty hand. Yahweh, with a mighty hand, delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread comes immediately after the Feast of the Passover. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread is celebrated, coupled with the Feast of the Passover. So the celebration lasts for about seven to eight days. More often than not, they're both celebrated together. Now, men were required to attend the celebration, the Passover celebration. It was not mandatory for women to come to Jerusalem and attend the celebration. So for Mary to go along with Joseph, and it also says that she went every year, it is a sign of her devotion to God. Once again, she took her faith very seriously. It's a sign of great piety and great devotion. Now, if you look at the map here, what is this? Galilee, Samaria, this is Judea. Jerusalem is here, Nazareth is in Galilee. Now, the journey from Nazareth down to, if you take the route of Samaria and come down, the journey from Nazareth would be about 130 kilometers, around 130 kilometers. So the journey included roads that were beset by highway robbers. So the pilgrims often traveled in large caravans. They traveled in large caravans, especially for protection. And the journey would take about three to four days, depending on the distance the caravan would make every day. So a a good enough caravan, a large enough caravan, would travel about 32 kilometers on an average in a day. So it will take about three to four days from Nazareth all the way down to Jerusalem. And Luke, reinforcing their piety and devotion, once again says, and I ask you to underline the phrase, that such an annual visit was a custom for the family. He is reinforcing their piety and their devotion. Now, the journey that Luke is describing for us here occurred when Jesus was 12 years old. And in the Jewish setting, a boy was responsible before God only when he is 13 years old. A boy was responsible before God when he is 13 years old. But when he is 12 years old, he would be asked to take his faith seriously. He'd be instructed towards the goal of being responsible before Yahweh. And the instruction was especially intense when you were 12 years old. Now, Joseph and Mary were faithful parents who wanted to instruct their child, Jesus, in the faith of Yahweh. So they take the 12-year-old Jesus on the journey to celebrate the Passover. Let me make one single comment here before moving on, please. One of the main concerns that you and I should have, especially as parents, is the spiritual welfare of our children. May I say that again? One of the chief concerns that you and I should have, especially as parents, is the spiritual welfare of our children. 
And one of the key ways we can help them spiritually is by living before them a life that exhibits daily faithfulness before God. One of the ways you and I can help our children in their faith is by living before them a daily faithfulness that exhibits faithfulness before God. A life that exhibits daily faithfulness before God. Very simple things. Reading your Bible. Coming to church regularly. Taking your cell groups seriously. Being honest to others. Being kind towards your spouse. Praying. Showing a concern for the lost. Now, can I say something as honestly as I can? And I say this to myself as well. Some habits are best taught by exemplifying them in our lives. Some habits are best taught by exemplifying them in our lives. And Jesus here was raised by parents who took their faith very seriously. He was raised in a home that was devoted to the faith of Yahweh. We should imitate Joseph and Mary in their everyday faithfulness to God. So you and I should imitate Joseph and Mary in, our, in their everyday faithfulness to God. Moving to the second scene here. Jesus remains in Jerusalem, unknown to his parents. Jesus remains in Jerusalem, unknown to his parents. Look at verses 43 through 45. You're looking at your Bibles? Yeah? Okay, verses 43 to 45. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now some pilgrims who came to the Passover, they returned home after two days because the Passover lasted just one day. But here the text tells us when the feast was ended, which means, which seems to suggest here to me that Jesus' parents stayed for the entire week to celebrate both the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the duration of the stay also reveals the devotion of the family to Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. Now Luke immediately introduces a problem here for us in these verses. Look at the verses. Joseph and Mary may have assumed that Jesus was with the relatives or somewhere in the caravan and did not worry much about Jesus. So only at the end of the first day's travel, when everyone would have come together for the night to have dinner or something, did the parents realize that there was a problem. Jesus was not among the members of the caravan. He was not among the relatives. And the text here clearly says, the boy Jesus stayed behind. Does your Bible say that? The boy Jesus stayed behind. The reason I said that is because it would be wrong to say that the parents were careless about Jesus. The text does not blame the parents for the incident. It is Jesus who stayed behind in Jerusalem without their knowledge. But imagine what Joseph and Mary would have gone through in this incident. If you've ever had your child go missing, albeit briefly, now God forbid such a thing should happen, but if ever you've had your child go missing even briefly, you can identify with the panic that Joseph and Mary would have gone through. Well, forget an actual incident, even the thought of it, uh, you know, sends shivers down our spines, doesn't it? It does. So here's a more likely explanation of the text. Since villagers traveled together, 
The parents assumed as they were traveling back that Jesus was safe somewhere in the caravan with some relatives or acquaintances. So when they searched for him and did not find him in the caravan, they quickly made a decision to go back to Jerusalem and search for him. That's the second scene. We move to the third scene where Jesus' wisdom amazes hearers while his parents have a complaint. Jesus' wisdom amazes hearers while his parents have a complaint. Look at verses 46 through 48. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So the parents of Jesus find him in the temple after three days. First day, they go out with the caravan. They travel for one day. The second day, they come back to Jerusalem. It took one more day and one more day perhaps of searching in Jerusalem. And then they find him in the temple on the third day. When they find him in the temple, what is he doing? He's sitting at the feet of the teachers, the Jewish teachers. Now, teachers in the ancient world normally sat with their students as they interacted. And the custom in Judaism was that students entered into a question-answer dialogue with their mentors as they learned the instructions, uh, as they learned the instruction from, from their teachers. This is the only account in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is taking instruction from Jewish teachers. Everywhere else, he is teaching. This is the only place where he is taking instruction from Jewish teachers. And Luke mentions something very significant here. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus is portrayed here as a boy with a thirst to understand and discuss spiritual things. He loved discussing theology. The crowd understands him to be a boy gifted by God. Here is a boy who was gifted by God. The dialogue that Jesus has with the teachers produces astonishment. Why? Because the insight of his answers, the understanding that he had, even at the age of 12, made them sit up and take notice of what he was saying. The crowd was amazed at the depth of insight that Jesus had. Now one day, In the future, in his ministry, his questions and insights will pierce the very heart of Judaism. And they won't have answers then. He will give them answers to his own questions. For now, Jesus is a boy. He is just 12 years old. He is taking instruction from the teachers in the temple. However, the rest of the section that we'll study will show that Jesus is already aware that he is more than a student of Judaism. He is more than a student of Judaism. Now the parents come and they come with a mild complaint here. Though they are amazed to see Jesus talking with the temple teachers. And the mother comes and she complains, why have you treated us like this? What were you thinking? The word used here by Mary refers to a reaction of being overwhelmed by events. She was overwhelmed by what all happened. Three days I didn't see my baby or a boy. And she comes back, and she comes back with a complaint. It probably, the word also indicates amazement and relief, both of it together. But Mary's words leave no doubt that Jesus had really troubled his parents. So she mentions that they searched for him with anxiety, 
And the word here for used for anxiety means deep trouble, deep distress, trauma that she went through and the parents went through. So Mary, speaking for both parents, wants to know why Jesus did such a seemingly insensitive thing. And the question prepares for an important teaching that Jesus gives about himself. Jesus is going to answer Mary, and in the process, he's going to talk about his identity, who he is, and the mission for which he came. And even his parents must come to understand and come to terms with who he is and the mission for which he came. The fourth scene, a very important scene, and this is the point of Luke. The point, Jesus must be in his father's house. Jesus must be in his father's house. Look at verses 49 and 50. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Imagine you're searching for a child for three days and you go and tell him that you've been insensitive, seemingly insensitive at least. And he says to you, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be, and the translation most likely should be, in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Listen to me very carefully, please. This is the point of what Luke is driving. So please pay attention to this point. The response of Jesus, like I said, represents the first words spoken by Jesus in this gospel. And these words spoken by him reveal a sense of priority. There's a sense of priority in his words. They also help us understand the necessity of the task to which he came. He came for a task, and it is necessary for him to do it. He must be in his father's house. And Luke presents the temple. Actually, the Greek word used here should be translated, it is necessary. It is necessary for me to be in my father's house. I must be in my father's house. There's no two ways about it. And Luke presents the temple. Listen, please. Luke presents the temple above all as a place where instruction is given. Get it? Luke presents the temple above all as a place where instruction is given. So Jesus must be involved with instruction of divine things. I must be in my father's house. I must be involved with instruction in divine things. Jesus has a call to instruct the nation. He's only 12 now, but a day is coming when he'll travel all across Israel and that'll be his priority, to instruct the nation and call people to have faith in Yahweh. I must be about my father's business. And that's why Jesus announces the necessity of being in God's house where God's presence is said to dwell and where instruction about God is given. And notice the way Jesus frames the question. Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Now look at the play on words here. Luke, so carefully, inspired by the Spirit, constructs the sentence. Your father and I were troubled, says Mary. And Jesus says, didn't you know I must be in my father's house? Your father? My father. I have my priorities. I have my priorities. Did you not know? It's actually intended to produce an affirmative reply from parents. And the parents need to see that Jesus must be about the work of discussing the things of God and what God desires. And the point here is that the parents of Jesus should have known where to search for Jesus. 
If he's not in your father's house, he must be in my father's house. So if he's not there, he must be searched there. Why? There's an oughtness to it. It is necessary. That's what I've come for. I've come for instructing the nation. And temple is the place where instruction happens. I must be in my father's house. Let me, let me make a comment here very quickly before I move on to uh, the application of this point. You see, Jesus is an example for all of us who follow him. While not all, all of us are called into full-time ministry or go to a foreign land as a missionary with the gospel, we are all called to serve the Lord in some role or the other for the furtherance of the kingdom. If we don't have a sense of mission and we are not engaged in fulfilling that mission, hear me please, if you and I don't have a sense of mission and we are not engaged in fulfilling that mission, then we are probably living for ourselves. And the Bible tells us and calls us that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again from the dead. You and I must learn from Jesus and be faithful to the call of our Heavenly Father. There's one more thing I want to mention here very quickly. Remember in the previous episode that LD spoke about in the temple, where Jesus was presented in the temple, Simeon says to Mary some very important words. He says, a sword will pierce what? Your own soul. And this person, this little baby, will cause a rising and falling of many in Israel. And to Mary particularly, he says, a sword will pierce your own soul. What did he mean by that? Mary will experience pain because of the intense rejection that Jesus will face in his ministry, number one. Number two, Mary will also experience pain because of the priorities of the ministry of Jesus, where he'll be away from the family, doing the things of God, and not so much attached to the family, the biological family that he's been born into. That causes pain. That causes pain, isn't it? And this episode immediately comes after the temple presentation, which is the initial fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy. Because that's exactly what Mary is talking about. Your father and I have been anguished, distressed about where you were for three days. We were troubled. But he must be in his father's house. All these are painful moments, but this is just the beginning. The cross is the one that will pain her the most is what we see in the Gospels. One more element in Jesus' response here. When Jesus refers to the temple as his father's house, hear me please, he is calling attention to the intimate relationship that he has with God that nobody else can have. He is calling attention to the intimate relationship that he alone has with the father. He is my father, my father. Talks about the mystery that is part of the person of Jesus. Jesus has a clear sense of oneness with the Father. He has a clear sense of identity with the Father and is committed to the mission that God sent him to do. I must be about my Father's house or I must be in my Father's house. Now Luke is presenting that here where Jesus calls the Father my Father. There's a sense of identity with God that Jesus has. a clear sense. Now how this language or view of Jesus fits into the Trinitarian language, or the discussions that happen in the later church councils, Luke is not explicitly concerned about that. 
But Luke is merely presenting the relationship between Jesus and the Father, where Jesus calls the Father, my Father. There's a sense of oneness there without explaining or elucidating for us or developing for us the doctrine of the Trinity. And I think personally that this is the high point of the infancy section of Luke. Jesus introduces himself to the reader for the first time and he declares to all of us that he is called to instruct human beings because he has a close, personal, intimate relationship with God. And what is the implication? If he is somebody who is one with God, if he is somebody who has a close, personal, intimate relationship with God, when he speaks, you and I must listen. And you and I must bow to his authority because he comes with the very authority of the one he calls my father. My father. Verse 50, look at verse 50 please. Joseph and Mary did not understand what Jesus was saying. They are ignorant of the exact nature of the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. And if they had understood his mission better, they would have known that he must be in his father's house and they would have gone and looked for him there. But the ignorance of parents reveals to us that it is hard to fathom the new ground that Jesus was breaking. It is hard to fathom the new ground that Jesus was breaking. It is not surprising that those around Jesus were slow to realize who he was fully. Even the disciples found it difficult. It only gradually dawned on them. And that's how the synoptic gospels especially present as Jesus is born of the virgin, miraculously of course, but he is truly a man. He looks like a man, he does things like a man, but there's something more about him. He's doing things that only God can do. And that's how the synoptics present who Jesus is. It is a problem of understanding that continues to our own day as well. So in light of that, let me ask you this question as an application. And I, I ask myself this question as well. What do you and I think of Jesus' person and his authority? What do you think of the person of Jesus and his authority? In a real sense, you and I are in a similar dilemma as the one faced by the parents of Jesus, Joseph and Mary. Who is Jesus? And is his authority such that even the most basic human relationships... Even the most fundamental human relationships like parent-child relationships are transcended by his authority. Who is Jesus? And is his authority so great that even the most fundamental human relationships are transcended? Even like a parent-child relationships. What do you think of Jesus' authority? Will you accept his claims or reject his claims? Our relationship to God is determined by the response because this unique one is so intimately related to the one he calls as my father. He's so intimately related to God. Now the passage here shows us that Jesus sets the priorities of his commitment to the heavenly father more than and above his love for his earthly parents. He, he has a priority of doing the things of the father than the love that he had for his earthly biological family. While we are all called to love our families, and we must never neglect them, the Bible asks us to take care of our families, love for Jesus must always, always take precedence. Love for Jesus must always take precedence. Why? 
because as Luke's gospel resolutely shows us, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And how do we do it? Hear me, please. The way Jesus lived his life is a picture of how all of us should prioritize our lives before God. The way Jesus lived his life is a picture of how all of us should prioritize our lives before God. It is because of his authority, and it is because we follow him who is authoritative, that we often have to make choices that others do not understand. We often have to and do make choices that others don't understand. Let me give you an example. Taking up a job that pays us less just because we have more time for God and his people. Going on a mission trip instead of taking a holiday. Moving to a dangerous area or a tough country just to reach out to people. We often have to make choices that others do not understand. I don't know what it's for you, I know what it's for me, but we often have to make choices that others don't understand because God has called us to set priorities that are different from people who go through life without any reference to him. God has called us to have priorities that are different from people who go through life without thinking about him. Let me mention an illustration here and quickly come to the second point. During the early days of Salvation Army, You know, William Booth was a founder of Salvation Army. William Booth and his associates and the entire ministry was was taking a lot of criticism. They were bitterly being attacked in the press. Every day there would be something from the government and the religious leaders against Salvation Army in the newspapers. So one day his son Bramwell looked at the newspaper and there was a very critical article about Salvation Army. And he brings it to his father and he shows, Dad, look at this article. This is just, you know, lambasting our ministry and what we're doing. And William Booth responded this way. Bramwell, 50 years from now, it will matter very little how these people treated us. But 50 years from now, it will matter a great deal how we did the work for God. Perspective and priorities. 50 years from now, it will matter very little how the government treated us, or the, how, the, how the people around us treated us. But 50 years from now, it'll matter a great deal how we did the work and the ministry of God. So the first thing that we learned this morning about the identity and the authority of Jesus is that people struggle to understand Jesus' person, work, and authority. Then there's a second thing, and that is in verses 51 and 52, very quickly. And they say, that people must reflect on truths about Jesus and respond rightly to him. People must reflect on truths about Jesus and respond rightly to him. You and I must think carefully about Jesus and his works and submit to his authority. We must ponder who Jesus is. We must think carefully about Jesus and his works and we must submit to his authority. That's precisely what we see in this section of the passage. Mary and Mary pondered truths about Jesus in her heart, while Jesus, on the other hand, had an all-round development. And Luke explains to us this particular thing in two scenes. Number one, Jesus was obedient as Mary treasured things about him. Look at verse 51. 
And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And Luke mentions, and Mary, his mother, treasured up things, all things in her heart. So what happened at the temple at the age of 12 was a one-off incident. After that, Jesus returned home with the parents to Nazareth. And we can safely assume that he lived a normal life, an ordinary life. And Luke specifically mentions here that Jesus was submissive to his parents. While children are called to be submissive to their parents, and it's a normal thing for children to be uh, submissive to, his, uh, to their parents, it is noteworthy here because of who Jesus is. So it's a voluntary self-submission that he's doing here to his parents. In fact, we can see that he submitted at least for the next 17 years before he stepped out and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Luke, after mentioning that Jesus returned to Nazareth, he recounts Mary's response to this event and other events also like this one. He says his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. All these things, it's plural there. It's not just this one temple incident at the age of 12, but many others like it. She was pondering about many things and thinking about Jesus. The word here used means to carefully recall, to carefully keep an eye on things and understand what's happening. Mary took a note of events about Jesus and reflected on them. In fact, Luke is calling his readers to do the same thing. Reflect upon who Jesus is. Ponder truths about him when you encounter truths about Jesus. So that's the first scene. The second scene is there's a transition and it moves into the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. It says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. Now, here is a second statement about Jesus' growth in the introductory section. Chapter 2, verse 40 has a statement, and chapter 2, verse 52 also has a statement. Jesus receives two such statements. John has one such statement, which means Jesus here again, at least in the introductory section as we've studied it, we see that he is superior to John the Baptist. And he grows here in favor with God and man, which means everybody perceived his growth and uh, there was a favorable perception. Now Luke portrays the growth of Jesus in a very natural way. How do I know that? Look at the terms that he is using for Jesus. In chapter 2, he called him a baby. Later on in chapter 2, a little child in verse 40. And then he calls him a child. And finally, by the time you come to chapter 2, verse 52, he calls him by his name, Jesus. And from now on, Luke will call him Jesus because his name is Jesus. But the point is, people must reflect on truths about Jesus and respond rightly to him. Let me ask you this question in application and in closing. As I ask this question of myself, how serious are you about Jesus today? How serious am I about Jesus today? Where are you today in your relationship with Jesus? Where are you today in your relationship with Jesus? Maybe some of you listening this morning don't have a relationship at all with Jesus. Can you take time like Mary did to ponder about things that Jesus did and Jesus did in your life and think about it seriously? And may I plead with you to turn to him now and find life in him, a life that only he can give and nobody else can give? And I want to speak for a moment to the believers, and I'll finish 
in five minutes, please. To the believers especially. And I'm speaking to myself as well. Have you enjoyed the goodness of Jesus in your life so far? But now you're trying to explain it away because of the circumstances that you're encountering. Have you enjoyed the goodness of Jesus so far in your life, but now because of the circumstances, you're trying to explain it away? You have other explanations for it. Maybe you're a college student facing skeptical questions from your friends and from your own mind. And all you've believed is suddenly seeming like a fable to you. Maybe you're a working person and you prayed about this job and you got into it and you're getting promotion after promotion. You're earning very well now and suddenly things about Jesus seem to be fading in comparison with your career plans. Maybe you're burdened with family responsibilities that Jesus doesn't figure anywhere in the equation for you anymore. Maybe you're in ministry and some self-centered pursuits have blinded you from following your call and what God has called you for. No matter where you are in life, no matter where I'm in life, you and I must pause and reflect on truths about Jesus and bow to his authority. It's always good for our soul. It's always good for our soul. So Mary treasured up all these things in her heart and you and I must reflect on truths about Jesus and respond to him rightly. So what's the point of the entire passage? The entire passage basically says it's important to understand that Jesus is the son of God and respond to him appropriately. It's important to understand that Jesus is the son of God and respond to him appropriately. No matter where you are in life, it's vital to see Jesus for who he is and bow to his authority and bow to his authority. Just final illustration in two minutes and then I'll close. This painting is from Berlin Art Gallery. It was painted by a German painter called Adolf Menzel. Now, you, you, you will notice here that it's only partially finished. Look at this. It's only partially finished because the painter Menzel had intended to paint Frederick the Great talking to his generals. So he first painted the background, you see that, and then he painted the generals and then he just drew a charcoal sketch of the king. And before he finished, he died. He never painted the king, but he painted everything else in the picture. He died without finishing it. Brothers and sisters, the king must have his proper place in our lives. The king must have center stage. Thank you for your patience. May the Lord bless you all as you contemplate and ponder on things about Jesus as I do as well. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your word that is so clear and that is more relevant to us than this morning's newspaper. Thank you, O Lord, that for the first time in the Gospel of Luke, we heard your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, speaking. And he spoke about who he is, his identity and his mission. In his identity, he is the Son of God, the Son of the living God. In his mission, he came to reveal God to man and save mankind through his death on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for all of these beautiful truths that you reveal to us week after week. And we pray, O Lord, that like Mary, 
we would ponder these truths about Jesus as we encounter more and more truths about Jesus and we always, always have the humility to bow to his authority in our lives. We want to pray for the rest of the meetings, the brothers meeting and the Sunday school and, uh, and uh, the other meetings that the sisters have, O oh Lord. We pray that you would have your hand of favor and blessing upon each one of them, O oh Lord, and bless us and help us to always have our King in the right place in our lives. In Jesus' name.